This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis by George Monbiot, now out in paperback. I interviewed George just recently about this very book on the show. A toxic ideology of extreme competition and individualism dominates our world. It misrepresents human nature, destroying hope and common purpose. Only a positive vision can replace it. A new story that re-engages people in politics and lights a path to a better future. Guardian columnist George Monbiot shows how new findings in psychology, neuroscience, and evolutionary biology cast human nature in a radically different light, as supremely altruistic and cooperative. He shows how we can build on these findings to create a new politics of belonging. Both democracy and economic life can be radically reorganized from the bottom up, enabling us to take back control and overthrow the forces that have thwarted our ambitions for a better society. Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis by George Monbiot. Out now in paperback from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Andres Manuel López Obrador, or AMLO, has won an overwhelming victory in Mexico's presidential election. He's the left candidate, and he shattered a corrupt, old-party system that brought ordinary Mexicans rampant violence and economic immiseration. But AMLO will face powerful political and economic constraints once in office, including some of his own making, like an alliance with a conservative evangelical Christian party. There will be other problems, too. AMLO has pledged to shift course on the drug war, but without breaking with prohibition, eradicating the roots of mass violence, violence that made 2017 the drug war's bloodiest year on record, won't be possible. AMLO has pledged to raise funds by cracking down on corruption. But even in a country as corrupt as Mexico, those funds won't be enough to significantly increase social spending. Yet it's clear that the future that López Obrador's win has made possible is far better than what Mexicans could ever dream of under the corrupt neoliberal pre or the conservative pan. My guest today is Christy Thornton, a professor of sociology and Latin American studies at Johns Hopkins, making her second appearance on the show. During the last week, she was an election observer for the Scholar and Citizen Network for Democracy in Mexico. Before entering academia, Christy was the executive director of the North American Congress on Latin America, or NACLA, which is the best place to go for English-language lefty news on this hemisphere. Before we get rolling, this show is only possible because you, my listeners, make contributions. That's my income. That's how I pay producer Alex Lewis. And that's how I pay for all sorts of overhead that even a scrappy podcast like this one requires. We also send left-wing books to supporters and a weekly newsletter. All in all, it's a pretty good deal. So if you haven't already, please make a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Thanks, and here's Christy Thornton.
Christy Thornton. Welcome back to The Dig. Thanks for having me. This was AMLO's third run for the presidency, and obviously he didn't win those first two times. What changed both in terms of AMLO and in terms of the political conditions in Mexico that allowed him not only to win, but to win very decisively? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and it really is a combination of both things. So with regard to López Obrador himself, um, he did moderate his campaigning significantly. Um, People will remember that López Obrador, when he narrowly lost the presidency in 2006 in what was most likely a fraudulent election, um, he lost by something like half a percentage point. Um, He was really thought of as a kind of political firebrand. He was very much um, kind of aggressive, populist, leftist campaigning. Since then, um, he has created a coalition. So when he won this time, uh, he won in a coalition with not only the party that he created, Morena, um, which is also different from his previous times running for president, um, but also with the Workers' Party and um, a small right-wing evangelical party called Encuentro Social. And joining his campaign team and his likely cabinet were a number of um, representatives of the Mexican business class, people with ties to the industrialist community, the banking community. So he really ran a much more moderate sort of conciliatory campaign this time. But probably much more important than that is the change in the Mexican political conditions, as you mentioned. Um, The complete and total uh, devastation of the PRI as a kind of viable political project that has happened under President Enrique Peña Nieto is probably the single most important aspect of this. And that is um, Peña Nieto's administration has been the least popular in Mexican history since they started keeping statistics. His popularity ratings reached as low as 12% in 2017. Um, So he's a wildly unpopular president marked by massive corruption scandals, uh, human rights problems, and continued economic stagnation. One of the most important things that happened here over the last few years in the Peña Nieto administration was um, what's referred to here as the gasolinazo, and that is when the government raised gas prices by nearly double, uh, causing hundreds of thousands of people to come out into the street to protest, because this came after a series of uh, neoliberal economic reforms that allowed private investment in the gas and oil sector for the first time since 1938. So um, Mexican voters were promised that these kinds of reforms that Peña Nieto pushed through were going to make their lives better, when in fact, of course, they benefited corporations and uh, politicians attached to those corporations rather than the Mexican people. So that is really the context in which um, AMLO's message resonated this time, the third time, um, in a way that it had not previously. That sort of gets at explaining not only the fall of the the pre, but really the collapse of the entire party system in Mexico as Mexico knew it. The all three major parties, the pre, which was in the presidency, and but also the PRD, the Party of the Democratic Revolution, which is AMLO's former party and was left wing, uh, no longer so, and the PAN, the part National Action Party, which is the conservative party, they all in the legislature joined together in a Pacto por México, a pact for Mexico, to support Peña Nieto. Explain what the Pacto was and what that did to those parties standing as as nominal opposition parties. Yeah, so that's exactly right. Um, when Peña Nieto came to power, uh, his promise was that he would 
um, deepen a series of neoliberal reforms that have been going on here really since the debt crisis of 1982, and especially since the implementation of NAFTA in 1994. There were a number of sectors that had not been sort of fully liberalized, um, including gas and oil, as I mentioned, uh, telecommunications, and a number of areas in which Peña Nieto's administration really promised that he would complete the neoliberal transition here in Mexico. And in order to do so, he put together this legislative coalition where within the Mexican Congress, the upper house, the Senate, and the lower house, the Chamber of Deputies, um, he created this electoral coalition, as you said, between his party, the PRI, which had previously ruled Mexico unopposed as a single party state, um, the PAN, which had been the right-wing party in power previous to his taking over, um, and the PRD, the Party of the Democratic Revolution, the nominally left-wing party. Um, after um, they, this Pacto por México was created, um, it essentially meant that Peña Nieto could push forward this series of reforms as changes to the constitution. So for instance, in order to open up the gas and oil sector to foreign investment, they had to amend the constitution um, because the gas and oil was nationalized back uh, in the 1930s under President Lázaro Cárdenas. So in that it was way, seen a as number- a key revolutionary accomplishment for Mexico. Absolutely. It was the fulfillment um, after 20 long years of fighting, sort of after the end of the military phase of the of the revolution, to have that gas and oil sector nationalized. And so it was a huge deal to bring in particularly U.S. and British oil companies to be able to do investment, research, development, um, those kinds of things. So that pact uh, really cemented a situation in which Mexican voters didn't feel that they had any kind of electoral options. And so what we saw during Peña Nieto's presidency over and over and over again was people taking to the streets. Um, the level of mobilization was massive and sustained literally from the day Peña Nieto took office. Uh, his inauguration day, December 1st, 2012, um, he took the oath of office behind a massive barricade of riot police um, with hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of protesters outside in Mexico City. Um, So that sense that there was not an electoral alternative really dominated. Um, As you mentioned, uh, Lopez Obrador had split off from the PRD, in which he had been an important member. The PRD was formed after a previous fraudulent election uh, in 1988, when the PRI literally stole the election by unplugging the computers, reconfiguring <laughs> them, and plugging them back in. It's kind of the that most famous old school, fraud. old school. Yeah, corruption. It's, it's the most famous act of fraud in Mexican history. Um, it's the the explanation that the PRI gave when they did it was "se cayó el sistema," the system has gone down, <laughs> and um, when the system came back up, surprisingly, uh, it favored the establishment candidate and not the uh, kind of insurgent left candidate. So um, that candidate, Guatemoc Cardenas, the son of Lázaro Cardenas, um, split off with a number of people and formed the Party for the Democratic Revolution then in 1988. And López Obrador allied himself with that party very early. Um, but by the time we got to López Obrador's second loss of the presidency in 2012, um, he decided to leave the party. He decided that it was no longer a left party, that it was not living up to its ideals. And so he very spectacularly left the party and formed a new social movement, which was the movement for national regeneration, Morena. And um, that 
movement, uh, many thought of it as a kind of personal vehicle for the advancement of AMLO. Um, it got party status in 2014, uh, was allowed to begin competing in, in elections. Um, the first candidate for Morena, uh, who was really viable, didn't run um, until last year's uh, gubernatorial elections in the state of Mexico, when a candidate um, who had very little political experience, was a school teacher, took on um, the kind of machine pre-candidate in the Estado de Mexico, Mexico's most populous state, and very nearly won. Um, I was here observing for that election and witnessed massive amounts of fraud and irregularities and violence and intimidation. Um, so even with that level of fraud, the PRI was barely able to hang on to this governorship in the state of Mexico, where it has long held power unopposed. So Morena really... Um, began to pick up steam last year during those elections and became it became obvious that this would be a much bigger contest than just AMLO um, because these are the biggest elections in Mexican history. Something like 3,400 seats uh, have been have, were up for election on Sunday. Um, not only the presidency, but the entire legislature, both houses, the Senate and the Chamber of Deputies, um, nine governorships, and thousands of local and state-level offices. And so, Moreno went from fewer than 10% of seats in the Chamber of Deputies to an absolute majority. Yeah, that's right. So Morena and its coalition partners will have a majority in both houses of Congress um, and have taken at least five, maybe six of the um, of the governorships. If you include the mayor of the city of Mexico now, which is its own entity, um, a woman named Claudia Scheinbaum from the Morena party won here and will take over as the mayor of the city of Mexico, which is essentially a state into itself. Um, so Morena took, um, you know, the majority of seats across the board. And perhaps even more significant is that the pre's presidential candidate, Jose Antonio Meade, a kind of technocrat um, without any kind of real vision for change, um, coming from the party that governed Mexico as a single party state for 70 years, he won not a single federal electoral district. So this is just a staggering sea change here in Mexico, a thorough repudiation of the PRI, and really a, a serious mandate for change going forward from the Lopez Obrador administration and all of these down ballot offices um, at the federal, state, and local level. In fact, Lopez Obrador, I believe, won every single state except for one. Yeah, that's right. So the, the um, victory was really decisive. The PAN, so the, the second place candidate was running on this curious coalition, which really tells you how much the party <laughs> system has devolved, where the second place candidate, um, uh, Ricardo Anaya, another U.S. trained technocrat, um, was running as a coalition between the right wing National Action Party and the nominally left wing Party for the Democratic Revolution. So <laughs> Not a good look. <laughs> the, yeah, exactly. So the the political system in that way has really been scrambled. And I think I saw on Twitter this morning, actually, that the PRD may have received so few votes in this election that in it may be decertified as a political party in that way, because um, so much of the left part of the PRD left the party for Morena. Um, and so w it remains to be seen whether the PRD is going to survive as a political entity after this after this election. In fact, they got fewer votes than the Workers' Party, which was in, um, you know, which is a, a longtime left-wing sort of militant and revolutionary party. So um, you see the PRD being completely outpaced by, you know, small right-wing evangelical party, a militant left-wing Workers' Party. So it's clear that this um, party that emerged to be the left alternative of the pre coming out of a pre-formation is now is now done for. And so we'll see what happens with that party moving forward.
let's step back and let me ask you like the big picture question, which is what do you think his presidency will look like? Are you are you optimistic, pessimistic, or an impossibly complex combination of both? <laughs> I guess probably uh, that the, your last option is the best one. Um, look, Lopez Obrador has put together this incredibly complex coalition. So there are people on the left who look to, for instance, his alignment with this right-wing evangelical party in Cuentro Social, which is a very small party, um, but is has important uh, backing in particular places where Lopez Obrador himself was unpopular. So in that way, it was a kind of strategic bringing together of uh, particular electoral districts where he needed the votes. Is that the traditionally um, conservative North or... Uh, yeah, exactly. In in further in the north, where um, the PAN has has had power for a long time, the PAN is a, a right wing Catholic party. So this is a right wing evangelical party. It's very small, and evangelicals haven't had the kind of political influence here in Mexico that they've had in some other Latin American countries yet. Um, but so there are people on the left who look at that coalition and throw up their hands. Right? They say. Lopez Obrador can't be trusted. He's willing to align himself with these right-wing, homophobic, anti-abortion, anti-woman um, leaders. And so I think that that is a real concern. Um, I have spent a lot of time talking to people who will be in the new Lopez Obrador administration who tell me that those people will be quickly isolated. And so I hope that that's the case. Um, in AMLO's uh, acceptance speech, the speech that he gave after it was clear that he had the landslide victory and his opponents conceded, which is unheard of here. Um, he specifically mentioned LGBT rights. He specifically mentioned the rights of women. And in fact, actually, Mexico will have gender parity in its Congress for the first time ever, and his cabinet will have gender parity. So this has actually been a moment of huge advancement for um, women in politics here in Mexico. And that's because that of the li that's because of Morena's list, right? Yeah, exactly. So the, the people that Morena brought on, and there also have been these electoral reforms trying to make it so that this is the case. Um, so in that way, there's reason to be skeptical of, of particular people that uh, and, and parties and sort of coalition partners that AMLO has brought into the room, without a doubt. And people on the left who have pointed those out, um, friends in the gay community who have said that that is a kind of deal breaker for them, uh, you know, we should hear them and absolutely respect that. <clears throat> I hope that the people within the administration who are who have signaled their willingness to fight um, for uh, women's rights agenda and LGBT agenda, gay you know gay marriages ha passed here in Mexico City at the tail end of the of uh, AMLO's tenure as mayor. Um, so that the kind of social progressive agenda I think is something that there will be fights for from both within and without the administration. So the other fights I think are. Um, are the ones that will be even more difficult. And those have to do with um, the economic situation, um, the rooting out of corruption, the question of migration, uh, and the question of, of security. Um, and those are really going to be the areas where structural constraints on the Mexican state and on uh, AMLO as leader are going to be really important. And so those are the areas that, you know, we can talk about uh, whether there is room to be optimistic or pessimistic as well. One thing that's notable about AMLO is that his, his rhetoric focuses on attacking what he calls a mafia del poder or a mafia of power. What does he mean by that? And is it a formulation that risks obscuring how power actually operates in Mexico? Like, is it more of like a nebulously populist formulation rather than a left, left populist one? 
there are many things about Lopez Obrador's win and about what politics looks like here that are sort of deeply particular to Mexico. So in this way, it's really difficult to compare um, what's happening in Mexico to other kinds of populisms, um, to other anti-establishment moves elsewhere, because so much of this election was about a referendum on the particularities of the Mexican political system, about the power of the PRI um, and the kind of long history of the single party state. Um, and so in that way, I think it's a little bit hard to compare Lopez Obrador fruitfully to other kinds of these um, other kinds of these politicians. Um, that said, that that hasn't stopped anyone, and so there have been tons <laughs> of comparisons, obviously, to um, from everyone from Hugo Chavez to Donald Trump, and I think that really tells you how useless the comparison is that you could put those two people, um, hold them up, and say that this man is somehow like both of them. It was very much a, a question in the mainstream media, is Mexico about to elect its own Donald Trump? Um, <laughs> and their policies just couldn't be further from one another. Um, and so, and we'll, I think, you know, in important areas, trade, security, migration, there are going to be real confrontations between a Lopez Obrador administration and a Trump administration. And we can definitely talk about that. Um, with regard to the mafia of power that you asked about and the way in which this is a kind of particularly Mexican formulation, um, there's a saying here in Mexico coined by this pre-party um, pre administrator who said, um, a politician who is poor is a poor politician. And he said this with some pride, right? Like the idea that you use the state to enrich yourself personally has long been a way that Mexican politics has been seen to work. And that derives from one party control throughout the entire 20th century and really continued to be the case after the so-called democratic opening in 2000 when the right-wing National Action Party took power. So yeah, when um, they came back, it was said, uh, que se vayan los pendejos y regresen los corruptos. <laughs> the yeah, comments exactly. are going, the corrupt are coming back. <laughs> Right, exactly. So the idea that um, that corruption is just so endemic in the Mexican political system that politicians, uh, it's expected that they enrich themselves and their cronies in the business class. And so that's really what uh, AMLO means when he talks about the mafia of power, is the extent to which for so long here in Mexico, the state and the government have been seen really as vehicles for personal enrichment, that the government is really used for the enrichment of the political class and their business, um, their business cronies. And so that's who he really intends to go after um, with the kind of main part of his platform, which is this rooting out of the corruption. And so um, actually the woman who will be the equivalent of what is kind of like a comptroller general in the Mexican federal government, she's the person who will review federal spending and sort of decide how things get parceled out. Um, it, this job of rooting out corruption and figuring out where the wasteful spending is happening falls to her. It's a job that I don't envy, but she is an incredibly um, up upstanding and forthright person who comes from a deep left background. And so that is really the core of um, Lopez Obrador's vision for how he's going to change the state is to root out this idea that um, to be a politician, to be in government means to enrich yourself and your cronies. And so we can expect to see um, a thorough revision of how federal spending happens, how money gets sent to the states. Um, and that's because here in Mexico, there are so often and, you know, really once a week, we get a scandal here um, about some kind of government contract for a ghost company, no show contracts, kickbacks, that kind of thing. So AMLO really believes that by rooting out this corruption and how the federal government's money is used, 
he's going to free up enough money to take on significant social spending without having to raise taxes to a great deal. Um, and so he really wants to, this idea of cleaning up the federal government, cleaning out the corruption, going after what he thinks of as the mafia of power is a really central part of his platform and something that I think we can expect to see him really hit the ground running to try to do. In dissent, um, Carlos Bravo, Regidor, and Patrick Iber argue that there's a, a limit to this sort of anti-corruption politics and that AMLO will have a hard time following through on his social spending pledge if he limits his revenue-raising activity to uh, cracking down on corruption. There is certainly a lot of money to be recouped by fighting corruption in Mexico because there is a lot of corruption, but probably not enough to build a welfare state. Right. I think that that's probably right. And it's something that economists, even on the left, have said, you know, look, the Mexican federal budget, the amount that they spend on these things that's being diverted into corrupt activities is not going to be sig significant enough to really reorient social spending. And so that really gets to one of the key parts of um, what a Lopez Obrador agenda looks like and how Mexico is kind of inserted into the global capitalist economy now, right? Mexico, Lopez Obrador's vision really fits with a long line of Latin American kind of state developmentalist thinking. That is, he wants to really use the state to harness and direct um, the spoils of a, an essentially capitalist economy to protect the poor um, and fight inequality. And so it's not a really, he has not put forward a socialist vision for the Mexican economy uh, in the way that we might traditionally think of that. This is, is like what the PRI did before its neoliberal turn. Precisely. And so in some ways, it does hearken back to a kind of mid-century state developmentalism. Obviously, the problem is that we are in a much different kind of global economy, right? And so the ability, when the Mexican state in the 1950s, 60s, into the 70s was having 6, 7, 8% growth rates on an annual basis, was going through a massive industrialization um, and really saw you know per capita incomes rising in a, in a tremendous way, that was a moment when import substitution industrial industrialization could really pay dividends. Um, it was a moment when the Mexican economy was much less open to the global economy. And that is a situation in which we kind of can't put the genie back in the bottle, right? So now Lopez Obrador's task is to try and build in protections for the sectors that have been most affected by Mexico's insertion into the global economy. He's talked particularly a lot about farmers, for instance, um, and the Mexican agricultural sector, while not disrupting the kind of growth potential of Mexico's insertion into that economy. So again, this is a kind of contradiction um, in needing to see uh, higher levels of capitalist growth here in Mexico while also trying to protect a kind of redistributive agenda. And so that is going to be the real challenge moving forward to see if there can be a model for this kind of state developmentalism going forward um, and the questions about oil, about migration, about um, maquilas in the north, about the supply chains with U.S. companies, these are all going to be really important aspects of how the Lopez Obrador administration tries to figure this out. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for dig listeners like you one that you might like is mistaken identity race and class in the age of trump by assad hater 
Whether class or race is the more important factor in modern politics is a question right at the heart of recent history's most contentious debates. Among groups who should readily find common ground, there is little agreement. To escape this deadlock, Assad Hader turns to the rich legacies of the black freedom struggle. Drawing on the words and deeds of black revolutionary theorists, he argues that identity politics, as we have come to know it, is not synonymous with anti-racism, but instead amounts to the neutralization of its movements. It marks retreat from the crucial passage of identity to solidarity, and from individual recognition to the collective struggle against an oppressive social structure. Weaving together autobiographical reflection, historical analysis, and theoretical exegesis, mistaken identity is a passionate call for a new practice of politics beyond colorblind chauvinism and the ideology of race. Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump by Assad Hader. Out now from Verso Books. One place to, to look for clues as to what López Obrador's presidency might look like is his stint as mayor of Mexico City. What did his government look like and what might it suggest about what's coming next? Yeah, absolutely. That's a place where... Um, the idea that we expect Lopez Obrador to govern in a really pragmatic way, that is not as an ideologue, but as a pragmatist, many people who look back to his tenure as mayor of Mexico City, that's where that idea comes from. And that's because um, he did put forward a number of important social programs, um, housing and pension programs, you know, important social protections. But he also allied himself very importantly with me in crucial members of the Mexican business class, including none other than Carlos Slim, Mexico's richest man frequently appearing on the Forbes list of, you know, richest men in the world, um, to he, AMLO and, and Slim got together to sort of do a public private partnership on the urban redevelopment of the center of Mexico city. Um, and so in that way, we saw him partnering with important members of the business class, even as he pushed a kind of socially progressive agenda. So people look back to that time in office and really judge from that way that they believe that he will govern pragmatically and make important um, kind of coalitional moves when he needs to, rather than being kind of ideologically driven. I want to ask about the future of, of Morena under, under AMLO. What is Morena like as a party? Is it substantively a real party or is it more a vehicle for AMLO? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think six months ago, observers might have said that it was more of a vehicle for AMLO, right? Um, and as it became clearer that he had a significant lead, um, more and more people sort of started aligning themselves with the party. I think one of the really interesting things that has happened, for instance, um, are the existence of these new governorships. Um, the mayor of Mexico City, for instance, this woman, Claudia Scheinbaum, she will be a really important leader within the party. And other governors who have existed, you know, there are sort of former soccer stars and other people who have come into the party to take over these important leadership positions below the level of the presidency in the legislature and in the governorships. And so I think that this is a moment where this administration is where we will see Morena be built as a, as a substantive party. As I said, it was only founded as a party, got party status in 2014. Um, and previous to this election, there have been some small elections where Morena candidates have been important, but the, um, the 
fight in the state of Mexico last year was the first time that um, a kind of high profile Morena candidate uh, had a chance of winning. And so this is really a brand new political formation. And like so many political formations in Mexico, right, um, people on the left criticize that lots of the um, people running in the party, including Lopez Obrador himself, come out of the pre-formation. That is, they come out of the existence of the single party state. And, um, you know, I, I find that compelling as far as it goes. Uh, it is important that people who had been in a previously corrupt government that we recognize that that was the case. Um, but there was also, you know, before 2000, the only way to be in government in a real way was to ally yourself with the pre or the pawn. Um, and the pawn existed as a kind of loyal opposition to the pre in many ways. So um, having come out of a kind of pre structure, the way that the PRD did, the left wing party. Um, now Morena has kind of split off from that. And so I think that there are important ways in which we need to keep in mind that uh, so much of the Mexican political system is birthed through that single party state. Um, but it is also the kind of um, the raison d'etre of, uh, of Morena to clean up that political system, right? That's the idea of having broken off and founded this party itself. So um, we, uh, I, we hope that what we don't see is the kind of sclerosis that set into the PRD, the former left party, where um, there emerged kind of center and right-wing factions within the party who gradually took it over and entered into that pact with the pawn and the, and the pre. Um, so we hope that that will not happen with Morena, but the, the history uh, has been that thus so far. What's different now, I think, is actually just that the PRI has been so thoroughly defeated. Um, whereas previously, when the PRD split off, the PRI was still the most important, most powerful political formation in the country. Now we have a situation in which the PRI was just completely devastated in this election. So Morena has more room to maneuver in the political system, more room to distance itself from pre-structures of power than previous opposition formations did. And so I hope that that means going forward that Morena will be able to build a kind of independent left party structure away from the kind of corrosive corruption that has marked Mexican politics over this last century. And under Fox and Calderon, the two consecutive Pan presidencies, the PRI still maintained significant bases of of regional and local power. Absolutely. So the PAN, you know, took the presidency, but the PRI still very much dominated the kind of political structure here in Mexico. So uh, in various regional offices within the legislature, the PRI was still incredibly powerful. And so um, now that we have seen such a thorough, thorough defeat of the PRI, um, you know, there are people who have started to talk about maybe whisper in the wings um, that what Mexico needs to do is abolish the PRI. <laughs> you know, I would like to start sort of putting putting that idea out there as a kind of something. What if we were talking about um, what if Mexico, the Mexican political system began to talk about what happens in a post PRI Mexico? In the time of the Peña Nieto administration, um, when there were few kind of electoral options for voters here in Mexico and people were taking to the streets repeatedly, um, a chant that people would use all the time was Mexico sin PRI, Mexico without the PRI. And I think that that's a really compelling vision to think about now that they have been so thoroughly defeated at the polls. What would it look like? 
if there was some electoral reform that said, you know what, this is no longer a viable political party. This is just a vestige of a former corrupt system in a democratic Mexico. There's no room for the pre. Um, there are people who look at that agenda and say, okay, whoa, 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 if you're going to do that, you have to do the pan as well. But I think starting with the pre, you know, it's something that there have begun to be whispers about and whispers in um, kind of respectable corners, not fringe far left corners. You have important analysts at places like the Wilson Center in the United States saying, you know, if Mexican democracy is really going to work, what needs to happen is abolishing the pre. This might be a moment where that conversation gets to actually fruitfully get started here in Mexico. And that's something really exciting. I want to return to some policy questions to finish up. First, you, you touched on this a little. One of Peña Nieto's most critical policy measures was the partial privatization of Mexican oil. And then there was also the so-called education reform, which was aimed at curbing teachers' unions, which is mm-hmm. familiar to American listeners. Explain a little about those measures and other neoliberal reforms under Peña Nieto, and to what degree López Obrador might be able to reverse them. I understand that the, the oil privatization will be very difficult to undo. So Lopez Obrador has indicated with regard to the oil privatization um, that he will review the existing contracts. There are a little bit over 115 of these contracts with foreign private companies to do various kinds of um, exploration, development, uh, transportation of Mexican oil. Um, So what he has said he'll do with regard to those um, is review the contracts, make sure that none of them were entered into with any kind of illegal or corrupt means, that there were no payoffs or shadow companies. Um, And if he finds them to be uh, above board, he will allow them to stand. Um, And so that has given foreign investors Um, some confidence that uh, Lopez Obrador won't be tearing up previously entered into contracts. And that was something that was really important in the campaign. And when Lopez Obrador brought in, for example, Alfonso Romo as a a kind of campaign manager, uh, Romo is a very important um, investment banker and industrialist here in Mexico. And he would get quoted in Bloomberg and stuff on behalf of Lopez Obrador campaign. Yeah. And so he was brought in uh, very much as a representative of the business community. And I think he is probably behind this moderation that we've seen um, in saying that we're not going to tear up any of these oil contracts. The oil privatization was obviously a hugely important thing, um, having had a national oil company for so long and having it be this kind of um, fulfillment of the goals of the Mexican Revolution back in the 1930s, it had this incredibly important emotional significance when it happened. And there were massive protests here. And then protests, obviously, also when they raised the gas prices, um, which was what they, the complete opposite of what was promised with this reform. Um, so we'll see Lopez Obrador review those contracts. I think what we can expect is that um, he will enter into new ones much more slowly than the Peña Nieto administration, right? The Peña Nieto administration was repeatedly putting out calls for new kinds of bids, for exploration, transportation, et cetera. Um, I think we'll see a Lopez Obrador administration just kind of slow that down. Um, With regard to the um, education, um, telecommunications, these other areas, taxes, that were reformed under the Pacto por Mexico, um, some of them I think we'll expect to see continue. The question of the teachers union is a really important one. Um, The education reform was very much intended to kind of break the power of the official teachers union, which is Latin America's largest union. It has over a million people um, and is a very strong political force and also a a long standing kind of 
uh, vehicle for the kind of corruption and cronyism that we've seen. So there are some ways in which um, the breaking the political power of that formation uh, is important, even as we need to recognize that the protections that the union itself provides for teachers um, and and educators in general are incredibly important. So, And there is um, a powerful left-wing caucus within the union, right? Exactly. So, so there's actually a, there's a dissident union. There is a, a different union that's split off from the officialist teachers union um, that um, is the, it's confusing because they are- Sinte um, and Sinte. They exactly. sound the same to me. <laughs> it's, it's el Sinte and la Sinte. So one is the coordinadora. That is the, la coordinadora is the- um, the kind of broken off the the dissident left wing teachers union uh, broken off from the larger officialist pre aligned um, teachers union, and that's and more so, powerful in southern states like Oaxaca and Chiapas. Exactly, and there have been massive mobilizations really over the last decade plus by that dissident left wing teachers union. So I think we can expect to see formations like that become more important in kind of coalitional politics and social movement pushing of the Lopez Obrador administration. There are other areas in the with regard to policy um, that I think will be incredibly important. Um, Lopez Obrador has said that he will no longer act as a proxy for U.S. migration policy, and that has really been about the militarization of the southern border with Guatemala, trying to keep um, Mexican, trying to keep Central Americans from transmigrating through Mexico to the United States. The um, Previous administrations uh, here in Mexico, the current and previous administrations here in Mexico have really um, agreed to take that on as a proxy for the United States. And Lopez Obrador has said he will no longer continue that policy um, of stopping Central Americans at the southern border and will respect the rights of migrants. So that and this has be been known as the Frontera Sur program, right? Exactly. And so it is a security cooperation program with the United States um, where the Mexican government and the Mexican military have really been doing this at the behest of the U.S. for the fulfillment of U.S. migration policy. And Lopez Obrador said, why are we going to you know, prosecute the policy of um, a country that is not our own? So he said he will definitely change that. Um, there are other important aspects of this. Um, for instance, one of the last things that uh, Peña Nieto was able to get through um, is a is a very kind of scary law of internal security here in Mexico. And what that does is um, makes constitutional and legal the de facto use of the military in fighting the drug war. So, you know, like many places, obviously the military is not supposed to be used for domestic law enforcement purposes here in Mexico. So since the Calderon administration, the use of the military uh, in the streets of Mexico in fighting the drug cartels has really been against Mexican law. It's been in a kind of state of emergency situation. And this law of internal security regularized that and said that it will be legal going forward. What I'm told by people in the Lopez Obrador administration um, is that in many ways, those kinds of laws um, grant the president the power to do these things, but don't require them. So for instance, the law of internal security gives the president the power to deploy the military for law enforcement in the streets for kind of national security purposes, but it doesn't require him to do so. So in that situation, Lopez Obrador could say, okay, yes, there is the law of, of internal security. It was passed and to overturn it, we would need a supermajority that we don't have, but it grants presidential discretion to say, 
if I don't want the military to be out in the streets doing um, law enforcement in this way, I won't send them. And Lopez Obrador has indicated that he wants to draw back the military from the fight against the drug cartels to begin to try to provide economic opportunity for low-level people in drug trafficking, to provide amnesty for low-level people in drug trafficking. So he has said that he'll really change the policy of the militarization of the drug war in a way that's really important. So those are some of the policies, policy changes that I think we can expect to see going forward that will not only mean important changes here in Mexico, but will signal important shifts in the relationship with the United States. One follow-up on the, the drug war issue is obviously the militarization of the drug war backed in Mexico, backed by the U.S. since Calderon took office in, in 2006 has been an utter disaster leading to just a massive bloodbath and breakdown in, in the security situation in Mexico. Last year was the deadliest year of the drug war on record. To, to what degree do you think it'll be possible or he'll have the will to decisively break with the drug war status quo rather than just kind of reverting to something less atrocious than what we've seen under the last two presidencies? Yeah, I think that this is a really interesting question. And this is the difficult thing of Lopez Obrador coming to power now when there's a Trump administration in power, right? Because obviously, so much of what happens in Mexico with regard to the drug war happens um, with regard to the relationship with the United States. So the kind of retrenchment of a militarized, punitive drug war strategy under Trump and Attorney General Sessions um, makes the maneuvering room for Mexico much tighter. Um, in a situation that we were in, you know, the Obama administration obviously was waging a punitive drug war and was um, in, you know, continuing to send military assistance through the Merida initiative, but was also part of a kind of larger international move of recognizing that um, the way the drug war had been prosecuted over the last 40 years hadn't worked. Um, so we saw that UN special session about the drug war where there was a kind of recognition that existing policy wasn't working. Um, under the Trump administration, what we see obviously is a retrenchment, is a return back to um, the sort of most punitive, most militarized versions of the drug war. And so that's the situation in which Lopez Obrador will be operating. He has said um, that he no longer wants to use the military in this fight. And that is an incredibly important aspect of this, not only, not least because um, the generals themselves here in Mexico have indicated that they are tired of this, that they no longer want to be used in this way. So we've had important military figures come out in the Mexican media and say, look, this is not supposed to be the role of the military. The military is not supposed to be in the streets policing. We're not supposed to be fighting domestically. We're not supposed to be doing any of this. This is not the role of the military. So in that way, Lopez Obrador, when he decides to um, draw back the military in this fight, um, he will have important allies from within the military itself. Um, he really talks a lot about uh, getting at the root causes for why people join the drug cartels in the first place. Um, and in that way, he's talking about the kind of social base. He's talking about people who don't have other kinds of economic opportunities. So they take on roles as growers and traffickers and um, you know, security forces for the drug cartels. And so he really wants to 
look to the root of that and get uh, people the kinds of economic opportunities that they haven't had in a post-NAFTA Mexico to try and keep them out of the drug trade. Now, none of that really gets at, as you well know, the underlying um, sort of profit logic of the drug trade. And so that is the real question. Which is, is premised long, on prohibition. <laughs> exactly. As long as there is a prohibition policy in the United States, there's going to be a market. And that market is going to continue to compel people here in Mexico and elsewhere to grow, produce, and traffic these drugs. And so in that way, that structural constraint for what Lopez Obrador is able to do is going to be very serious. That said, the idea of withdrawing the military from this fight offering amnesty to low-level people who haven't been involved in violent crimes, offering, for instance, he has a program um, that he calls Becarios Not Sicarios, uh, that is, um, you know, scholarship recipients, not contract killers. And so the idea is that he wants young people to be able to go to school instead of joining up with the drug cartels. Um, so in that way, he's really talked about it a lot as the kind of economic and social roots of why Mexicans join into this forces, but that doesn't get at the larger kind of political economic questions of the drug trade itself, right? And that is the thing that is incredibly difficult for Lopez Obrador or anyone in this position to really combat without significant help from the major market, which is the United States. Pobre Mexico. Tan lejos de Dios, tan cerca de Estados Unidos. Yeah, always oh. so close to the United States. Christy Thornton, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Christy Thornton is a professor of sociology and Latin American studies at Johns Hopkins. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the Mexican party establishment seems to have abolished itself, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week, usually twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please take a moment and leave us a review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling friends, family, total strangers about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And last but by no means least, do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a big help. Mm-hmm.